Well, let me open us with a word of prayer, and then, like I said, we'll divide up in our groups to pray, and then everybody be back over here at 9.30, and I will get started teaching. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be here with one another. Lord, to be encouraged and, and built up as the body of Christ. We pray for our hearts today, that we could set aside the distractions and all the things that have the potential to take our minds away from worship. And I pray that you would enable us, Lord, to focus on you. I pray for our ability to not only hear the Word of God taught this morning in Sunday school and in the main service and in the evening service, but also to apply it to our lives. Lord, we pray that you would encourage, convict, and strengthen us by the teaching of your Word. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're covering a section that begins at verse 18 and goes to the end of the chapter, verse 22. And I was looking forward to picking up and going through it last week, and obviously I was sick, so we're going to do a little bit of review to tie us back into what we had a couple of weeks ago. As you make your way through 1 Peter, I'm convinced that the overarching theme of 1 Peter it is to be holy. Christians, you and I are called to be holy as God is holy. Now, in general, you hear people talk about the book of Ephesians and they talk about persecution and that's real and that's what we're dealing with now. First Peter begins with theology, chapter 2 is theology, and chapter 2 and beginning of verse 3 has a lot of practical living has to deal with the general spheres of life and how to be holy in a fallen world. As it's stated in 1 Peter 2.12, how to keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, such that you live evangelistically. So as we look through chapter 2, and there's all these various parts of life of how do you live in relation to the government, or bad employers, or in relationship... In chapter 3, in the husband and wife relationship. And all these things are about how to live holy in specific spheres of life. And what happens in chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, is it doesn't change the focus. It's still about living holy, but now the book takes on the flavor of persecution. How do you live holy when things go bad because of your faith? When you're treated poorly because of your faith? And these believers understood persecution. They were dealing with it. And Peter was writing to encourage them to keep pressing on. Don't give up. Verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14 says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, that's really the focus of the rest of the book. Suffering for the sake of righteousness. And I presented verses 13 to 17, sort of the preliminary, it's a way to prepare your heart to get ready for dealing with persecution, if it should come to us in a more systematic form. The idea is that normally if you're behaving righteously, meaning if you're living out of biblical faith, even unbelievers will leave you alone, but sometimes they don't. And if they don't, if you are persecuted, you can have confidence and hope that you're doing the right thing. Verse 17 really is the lead-in for our text. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing right, rather than for doing what is wrong. In other words, if you suffer because you did the wrong thing, you're just getting what you deserve. You don't get a pat on the back. That's just justice. But if you suffer, and it's God's will for you to suffer for doing the right thing, well then, you can be encouraged. That's a good thing. 
It's not bad. But Peter knows that even if you can theologically connect the dots and say this is good, it's still hard, and so he wants to encourage us. And the way he provides that encouragement in verses 18 to 22 In one sense, it's very straightforward. In another sense, these are some of the most complicated verses in the New Testament. As I mentioned to you before, these verses have layers of controversy in them. There are layers of controversy, and I'm going to introduce some of that today, but the controversies are such that heresy has sprung from these verses, wrong teaching, wrong doctrines, and even good teachers don't agree with all of what this means. But as I tried to emphasize when I introduced this and taught before, the overarching point I think is understandable. I think the overarching point is that God can bring good out of injustice. So if you're enduring injustice, don't despair. Romans 8.28 type theology is in view. So as we introduce this, I had a simple two-part outline. I covered the first point the first week, but it's two proofs that that God can bring good out of injustice. Two proofs that God can bring good out of injustice. The first proof was simply this. The unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. Now, I taught this last time. The Most of verse 18 is here. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. Again, this is just a brief review. All the teachings wind up online on the Lakeside website if you want more details. So I'm just going to go over it quickly to get into today's teaching. But it's obvious this is a connection to the prior verse, verse 17, when it says for. And remember, it's better if you suffer for, in God's will for doing the right thing than to suffer for doing the wrong thing. And he's trying to illustrate that by pointing to what we could call the ultimate injustice. For Christ also died. The crucifixion of Jesus from a human level, and I again, I addressed all this, was a travesty. Even Pilate recognized there's no evidence here. There's no guilt. And yet Jesus was killed anyway. For Christ also died for sins once for all. That's one of the lessons of the book of Hebrews. Jesus' death paid everything. That's it. There was one death, no more. One sacrifice took care of all the guilt of sins that all the hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions of animal sacrifices over the millennia could not do. And in the context of us being encouraged... Peter puts a lot of theology in place. Did we deserve that death? Of course not. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, the sinless one, for the unjust, us, the guilty. And he did it so that he might bring us to God. Goes without saying, we could not find our way to God. We were blind, we were dead. A lot of different ways the New Testament pictures it, but the reality is we were helpless. God sent his son to die for sinners like us to bring us life and bring us to God. And the end of verse 18 is really setting the stage for the contrast of what we're going to start with today. 
But it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh. As I alluded to before, Jesus died a real death in a real human body, and that's very important because there was a heresy that circulated that tried to say Jesus didn't even have a physical body. I was on it for a different reason this morning in my office. I was reading the introduction of a commentary, and I was reading about that very issue. There were people that thought everything of material existence is bad. God can't be bad. If Jesus is God, then Jesus can't have a body, and that's heresy. He really died. He had a real body of flesh, and he was put to death. So he died so that sinners could live. The unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. That in and of itself is encouragement. That gives us hope. But that was the first proof that God can bring good out of injustice. And that was just a brief review. Here's the second point, And this is going to take several weeks. The resurrection of Jesus declares his ultimate victory. So these are two proofs that God can bring good out of injustice. First is the unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. Second, the resurrection of Jesus declares his ultimate victory. Now as we start to wade into these verses, and this morning we'll start to see where the controversies start, I want to keep focusing on the big picture. Why are these verses in the Bible? It's to encourage you if you happen to endure unjust suffering. By reminding you that Jesus' unjust suffering accomplished the greatest thing of all time. That's the ultimate source of our encouragement. That's the ultimate source of our hope. So as I start to wade into these controversies, And I can't help but do it because it's in the text. I'm not doing it just for the interest of it. Don't lose sight of the big picture. None of the controversies are as significant as what I've already said. Jesus wins. And because Jesus won, we win. We have hope. No matter what's going on in this world, no matter how bad things get, we win in the end. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. Even if you suffer for doing the right thing in the end, you get eternity in heaven with the Lord. All they can do is kill your body. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, Peter didn't say it that succinctly. That's not exactly the words. I think that's the ultimate meaning. But he expressed this truth in challenging language because Peter was trying to paint some pictures that he believed his audience would understand that would illustrate these truths, and it's the illustrations that are proving these points where everything gets troubling. So follow along with me. I'm going to read this section again, and I'm not going to I'm going to start focusing on things, but it's going to get challenging as we get into it. So just be aware that this is going to take several weeks. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 
in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Again, there is a lot here. Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. He made a proclamation to spirits in prison who were disobedient in a way that has something to do with Noah and the ark, which translates into a discussion on baptism. And you can see all of a sudden you go, huh, wait, what is happening here? So let's, again, we're going to wade into this and we're going to be very methodical. And we're going to focus on the big picture because that's the important thing. Having been put to the death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. But made alive in the spirit. Now, the starting point for controversy, and it starts even in that little clause has to do with the fact that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. And there's two possible meanings of that. And some of you, does anybody have the NIV translation? Okay. If you look at the NIV, the word Spirit is capitalized. Because the translators made an interpretive decision. And if you have the NASB, the NASB like I do, or the ESV and some other versions, Spirit is in lowercase. Because those translators made a decision. Really comes down to this. Is it saying that the Holy Spirit made Jesus alive? Such that he rose from the dead? Or is it saying that Jesus rose from the dead in a different dimension? Meaning he occupied a different realm. A spiritual realm. Is this trying to point us to the work of the Holy Spirit, capital S? Or is it talking about the fact that Jesus lived on earth during the incarnation in one realm, and now when he was raised from the dead, he entered a different realm? Lowercase s. Now I think, not because I'm an expert, but just all the reading of the experts, I think that the best understanding is this is not referring to the work of the Holy Spirit. This is referring to the realm in which Jesus operates after his resurrection, but it's challenging for us. I think this is referring to the fact that Jesus now occupies the realm of heaven and eternity, such that when you look down a little bit further in verse 22, it's talking about he's at the right hand of God, gone, having gone into heaven. But all this impacts everything that follows. 
Again, I think he's just simply contrasting two aspects of the redemptive work of Christ to show us that Jesus has the victory over sin and death. I don't think he's teaching us a doctrine of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. Again, he first said Jesus died in the flesh. He was put to death in the flesh. He really died. And he painted a beautiful picture in just a few words of what that death accomplished. That the innocent one died for the guilty. That it was a single death for all time. I quoted several verses from Hebrews that makes that same point. The last time I taught. And I think that little phrase at the end of verse 18, but made alive in the spirit, is just proclaiming that Jesus didn't stay dead. That's it. There's a lot more here we're going to get into, but the big picture is Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He has victory over death as proved by his resurrection. And while during the incarnation, Jesus was walking on the earth, he was fully God, but he was fully man with a physical body. At his resurrection... He had a resurrected body and things were different. It's always challenge, it's always challenging to talk about before and after with Jesus because of the unique nature of who our Savior is. Jesus is eternal. While the incarnation was a unique period of his existence, it's not as though Jesus didn't exist. He is God. He's the eternal God. And so when we see these contrasts, it's very challenging for us and it stretches us and we need the Spirit of God to help us to understand these truths. But I think the ultimate contrast here is between the type of existence Jesus had during the incarnation and the type of existence he has after his resurrection. Now, on earth, Jesus had a real body. He was a baby. It was flesh and blood. His body. He grew as a boy. We have very little of Jesus' childhood, but we saw, even at a young age, he was very knowledgeable. He grew to become a man. And his body was a real body. He experienced fatigue. He was tired. He slept. He knew what it was to be thirsty. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to experience pain. His body could bleed. And he experienced emotions. From righteous anger, of course, to the point of where Jesus cried. So there was a sense when he was on the earth, even though he could work miracles, even though he was still God, he had a fleshly body that was limiting. But after his resurrection, all those limitations are gone. Now again, it's a challenge because Jesus still had a body. When he was raised from the dead before he ascended into heaven, he interacted with his disciples. 
But even then, he was a little bit different. Now, on the one hand, he was clearly not just a ghost. In Luke chapter 24, verses 37 to 40, his disciples saw him and they thought, in essence, he was what we would call a ghost. Verse 37 of Luke 24, but they were startled and frightened and they thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Verse 39, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them in his hands and feet. So even as there's a contrast between Jesus in the incarnation and Jesus resurrected, in one sense he had a body in both places. And you could touch that body. I won't read it all, but if you were to go to John chapter 21, verses 9 to 14, Jesus even cooked and prepared a meal, and it appears that he ate breakfast with his disciples. He ate fish. And it was clear, in one sense, that he had a body even after he was raised from the dead. Yet Jesus could do things in that body that defied the physical world. Even as he had a physical body after the resurrection, in one sense, there was another sense in which his body could do different things. It appears that Jesus could either walk through walls or doors, or he could materialize and dematerialize at will. In John chapter 20, verses 19 to 20, it says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. How did he get there? I don't know. But it seemed like the door stayed shut and he walked and was in their midst. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. But I think getting closer to where Peter is drawing the contrast is the fact that in this new body, after the resurrection, Jesus could go into heaven. He could ascend. Acts chapter 1 verses 9 to 11 records the actual ascension of Jesus into heaven. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, I can't even imagine that. We don't have any frame of reference. Wow. And again, nowadays we'd think somebody was hooked onto a harness or a rocket or something, but this was truly miraculous. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing, angels, stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Again, so in that sense, Jesus occupied a spiritual realm after his resurrection that ultimately shows our victory. Again, that's the latter half of verse 21 and 22. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven. So, The contrast is between Jesus dying in the fleshly body and rising again into the spiritual realm. Certainly, he was in the physical realm, but it transcended just the physical realm at his resurrection. 
And I think the ultimate issue is that Jesus is alive. Not just alive for a period of time, he's alive forever. And he will never die again because what he came to do is finished. Hebrews 9, verses 24 to 28, really articulate that concept. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Jesus was made alive in the spirit. He died that perfect sacrificial death, but he was made alive in the spirit. I think it's easy for all of us. I certainly know it's easy for me to state things that are very true about Jesus, and I mean them sincerely in one sense, but they become almost cliches. In other words, the frequency with which we hear things, the repetition in our circles of certain Christian language seems to lessen the reality of the significance of that language. I think it's that way with made alive in the Spirit. This really is central to everything that we believe. How do you have hope when everything goes sideways? It's because Jesus rose from the dead. Certainly his death paid the penalty for our sins, but if he hadn't risen from the dead, according to Paul, it's all worthless. It's all foolishness. In 1 Corinthians 15, there's some profound pronouncements about the significance that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. First Corinthians, I'll just read sections of it. I could read the whole section. It would take a long time. First Corinthians 15, I'll start with verses 12 to 14. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Verse 19 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians says it this way. If we have hoped in Christ... In this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Jesus being raised from the dead is central to our hope. 
It's central to everything we believe. If that didn't exist, if Jesus wasn't made alive in the Spirit, if He didn't rise on the third day, everything we do would be vain. When you think about that, that's the reality of what most people think about Jesus. They think what we're doing is a big waste of time. They think you're all suckers because you give money to this place. Why would you do that? It's pointless. And you deny yourselves earthly pleasures. You deny yourself things that they view as fun. Why? Because in their dead hearts, they don't believe Jesus died and they don't believe he rose again. So that makes all the difference. That's the big picture. Jesus was raised. He is alive. Not just in an earthly sense, so that he'll die again, but in an eternal sense, such that not only was he able to be on the earth, but he's now in heaven at the right hand of God, in the position of power and authority. But this is where everything gets confusing. Because Peter proceeds to illustrate Jesus being alive with reference to a proclamation to spirits in prison, which he then illustrates and relates to baptism as it ties into Noah's Ark and the flood. So he was made alive in the spirit, verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So this first little illustration of something that Jesus did that is related to him being made alive in the spirit starts getting us in the deep end of the pool. This is where trees start dying because scholars have written countless things over the years trying to explain what's going on here. I've really struggled with how deeply to go into this. I want to teach you what I think this means. I do want to point out some errors that I think lead to heresies. There's a part of me that thinks, well, I could sort of talk you through as you're going through your own Bible study and reading of how you deal with a controversial passage like this. But I'm going to try and just wade through it and tell you what I think it means while acknowledging certain issues. I know if you have a study Bible, probably there's an explanation in a footnote. And again, as I mentioned to you last time, commentators that I respect, not liberals, not people that disagree about the Bible, that not people that disbelieve it, people that believe it are all over the map. Not on the big picture. Jesus wins. They all agree. But in terms of what is Peter trying to show us? So I'm going to right now identify just some issues in this first part 
So you can be thinking and then I'll get into resolving those issues, Lord willing, next week. But these are some of the things that you would read in a study Bible or in a commentary if you looked it up online. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who once were disobedient. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So. Jesus in the spirit went and made proclamation. So one of the big issues is when did that happen? Did it happen in the pre-incarnate state of Jesus? In the actual time of Noah? Is that what it's talking about? Or did it happen between the time when Jesus died, but before he rose from the dead, as found in some versions of the Apostles' Creed? Did it happen after he was raised from the dead? Is it talking about something else entirely? What was the proclamation that Jesus made? You could call that preaching. Jesus went somewhere and proclaimed something at some time. What did he proclaim? There are some that say he went and preached the gospel to people that hadn't had a chance to hear the gospel when they were alive on the earth. I'll just tell you that isn't true. But there are some that think that. Was he proclaiming to humans who are already in hell something? Are these human spirits now in prison? Or is he proclaiming something to demons? Spirits of that nature who are somewhere in prison. And by the way, what is the prison? Those are some key issues and we'll wade into it. But don't lose sight of the big picture. Jesus wins. And if you should suffer for doing the right thing, take heart. Because God brings good out of things that others intend for evil and pray for me as I present it I know what I believe and what I plan to teach and I'll find out if next Sunday I still believe it and I still teach it (laughs) because as I study these things sometimes I change my mind but I think I know where we're going and let me give you a preview I think after Jesus rose from the dead, he went and proclaimed victory to demons who were already in prison for their prior sins around the time of Noah. And what Jesus was saying to them is, in essence, I win. And my children win. And you can never do anything to them. I think that's what's going on. But I'll explain it, why I think that next week. So let me close our time in prayer and I look forward to next week's teaching. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that Jesus has secured the victory. 
Not only did his death pay the penalty for our sins, Lord, but his resurrection guarantees that he triumphed. Our preaching and our belief and our faith is not in vain, Lord. And we thank you for that. And I pray if for your divine purposes, any of us should suffer for the sake of righteousness, that you would encourage us to know that ultimately we will one day be with our Savior in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.